1: We are going to attempt to get this going today. Welcome to it. What in the world is going on in here? Uh, sometimes the video element of this show just makes me very angry. <laughs> Welcome to the world famous Jiggy Jaguar radio broadcast. We are live coast to coast, border to border on iHeartRadio today. Also AMFM, twenty four seven iHeartRadio, tune in, iTunes, all the fun stuff. We are gonna go to Dan Perkins. We are gonna go to Daniel Levin, and we are gonna go to IQ hours only, maybe. And we're gonna see if we can ring the group, as they say. You gotta ring the group. So we've rang the group, and the group has joined us. <laughs> we have got uh IQL Rizzoli joining us today. We also have the great Dan Perkins, or as he calls himself the most dangerous man in America. Uh we also have Daniel LeBen with yeah, us today. It's the most dangerous man in radio. Most dangerous, dangerous man, man in, in radio. America. That's it. We need to get the we we we, 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 me. we 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 need to get the get get the gimmick right, as they say. Um, Daniel Levin joins us today on our big program. He joins us here via the magic of the old Skip Skype. Yes, the old Skyper Rooney. And uh, Daniel Levin has quite the interesting story. Uh, he was in his office in New York when he got a call from an acquaintance with an urgent cryptic request to meet him in Paris. A young man had gone missing in Syria. No government embassy or intelligence agency would help. Could he, would he? Well, this begins a very suspenseful, shocking, and at times brutal true life story. Proof of life, 20 days on the hunt for a missing person in the Middle East. And the author, Daniel Levin, joins us today here on the old Skip Skype. Daniel, welcome to the broadcast. How are you, sir?
2: No, I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: So this is quite the story. Explain to me and Dan and IQ a little bit about this. And I know that they're both going to have some questions for you. I will.
2: Uh, so, uh, all right. Well, I'll <laughs> give it to you in a nutshell. I uh, I run a foundation in Europe and we've, we've done work in a lot of failed states in the Middle East. And we were active in Syria after the civil war started in 2012, 2013 trying to mediate between the sides. That's before the war was decided. And uh, and, uh, as a result of that, we ended up interacting with really the power centers and all sides of that conflict. And this led to requests from families and some governments of missing persons, Americans, British, uh, Canadians, who had gone missing in Syria and wanted our help to try and find them. And so in 2012-13, we were pretty busy with that. In 2014, it was a pretty gruesome fall, if you remember. It's when some uh, some hostages got executed, decapitated, actually, like James Foley. Pretty awful time. And right in that time, I got another request to find a missing person who had gone missing, who whose name didn't make the public news. And that and uh, and this book is an account of the 20 days where I'm trying to find out what happened to him. It forced me into interactions with mainly with drug cells, uh, with people, human trafficking, young girls who were taken from villages in Syria and trafficked into the Gulf until I could catch up with the drug lord in Dubai, the drug lord who could give me the information of what had happened to this missing person. So this is the count of those crazy 20 days.
1: Wow. Uh, Dan, (laughs) start us off here, my friend.
3: I'm sitting here just uh, fascinated. I, uh, I I, wrote uh, uh, four books on uh, Islamic terrorism against the United States, and um, um, it was fiction. Um, not so much as it was based on fact, but also fiction. Uh, so for anybody or for myself, but did you get them?
2: Oh, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> Actually, uh, I'll tell you. I'll, I, I'll tell you this much: the the hunt uh, took me to the head of the militia in in Lebanon, who directed me to this drug cell. And I kept in the Middle East. Uh, there are not a lot of happy endings of these kinds of stories. Um, I'm not going to say what happened to him, but I will say one thing, which is the two young girls. Actually, the younger one of the two is the age of my own daughter, who is now 22. In 2014, uh, they had been taken from the villages and sold into the most awful uh, sex slavery. And there are a lot of people who are traded in between militias uh, and are used for ransom uh, to fund these wars. Uh, and those two young girls are the ones who ultimately brought me to the person who could give me the answer I was looking for. And those two young girls are very much still in my life today. We managed to get them out of the Gulf and give them new identities. They're today in Western Europe. The older of the two, who is just an unbelievable person, uh, just graduated law school, is going to be a public prosecutor. And I pity pity the fool who stands in her way, I can tell you that after what she's gone Mm. through so yeah unfortunately i'm not going to answer daniel i'm not going to answer your question directly forgive me because there's going to be absolutely no reason to buy the book for anybody afterwards
3: i agree <laughs> that's uh, I, I being an author of, of more than four novels i understand the process so let me ask you a different question to the best of your recollection when were you scared the most there were two
2: situations. Uh, one, I was scared. I had to go fly from Istanbul to Dubai on a moments I'm oh, sorry—to to Beirut on a moment's notice. I knew that I was going to meet the head of this militia in Beirut. This is a very well-known person who was on the U.S. sanctions list, and I knew that if I if he was if I was going to go see him, it was for him to authorize someone to take me to the next station of my quest. And I knew that to see him, I'd be unarmed, and I would have to surrender all my devices phones, everything. Uh, so I'd be cut off for the 12 hours that I would be in his custody. And uh, and this was pretty tricky. There's a bit of a background here, which is that um, he knew I was Jewish, but he didn't know that I'm Israeli-born. And in fact, you know, I'd been in Beirut with an Israeli army uniform in the late 80s. And so uh, there was a certain risk I was taking there, and I was relying on the person who had, who had arranged this it was somebody I completely trust, a Saudi friend of mine, uh, and also on the fact that this person would really be focused more on my Jewish identity, rather Israeli background. But that was probably the highest risk that I took. It was a calculated risk based on the person making the introduction. Uh, and then there was another situation uh, in Dubai where I was not a physical altercation where, uh, you know, I probably reacted a little too fast, fast I had no choice but to end up in that fight. But that could have gone in a very different direction, too. So those were the two, in those 20 days, the two times, there were some trips I had to turn down. I was asked to travel to the northeast of Syria, which is ISIS territory in near Raqqa. And I had to I had to refuse going there because I knew that was a risk that I just couldn't take.
3: Did, what role did the U.S. government have in in your quest?
2: None in this story. Unfortunately, the quest it came to me because the government couldn't help. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who go missing. Some are journalists, aid workers. Sometimes people are there in uh, quite in a semi-government capacity, and the government goes through some effort, depends on who it is, you know, and how high-profile this is. This particular person uh, wasn't sent by anybody. It was kind of an adventurer. There was a little bit of a context of why he ended up in Syria, which I described. But uh, because he had taken on this risk entirely on his own, the government said, there's no way we're going to cash in any change you really are on your own. And, and they were pretty harsh to the to the family, which is how the whole request came to me in the first place.
3: So uh, if, if we roll forward to today and we look at what happened this past weekend with the United States uh, bombing uh, the border, um, wh- what does that tell you about what's going on there?
2: Uh, look, there's a whole lot of tactics and not a lot of strategy going on there right now. I mean, if you take a step back, you look at the the Islamist fighters. Now, here they're bo- they're in in this particular case they're bombing militias who are Shiite militias affiliated with Iran. In other cases, when you're bombing ISIS positions, these are Sunni militant fighters. So, very, ostensibly, on a very different side of the equation. So, to answer right. your question properly. Uh, uh, I'd have to go a little bit back. With respect to the, the, the Sunni militias, meaning ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and so on, uh, let's not forget that some of them were on our side. So if you go back to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, obviously they were supported by us in Afghanistan when they were fighting the Soviet Union. We then lost control over this process through a whole number of events that happened. It would take too long to get into that. Let's also not forget that both Saddam Hussein in Iraq and Bashar al-Assad in Syria, the first thing they did when the war started was they released Islamist Sunni fighters from their prisons to, to create a little more chaos in their countries, right? And so there is a role that we play in why the Sunni Islamist fighters got that large. When you come to the Shiite groups, the ones that mainly in Southern Iraq that were bombed now by the US, they were bombed because they're considered allies of the uh, allies of the Iranians. Now take a step back here too. In January 2020, Qasem Soleimani, who was the head of the Quds Force, the elite Quds Force of the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guards, is assassinated by an American drone, it is assassinated in Baghdad. He was the one who had full control over all these militias. Now you take him out, it means that whoever is controlling these militias is no longer one person. So. Whether or not that was a wise decision, I know that he was considered the most uh, most dangerous man by the U.S., but let's also not forget that in 2003, this same guy, Qasem Soleimani, was considered the biggest ally of the U.S. in the fight against ISIS. He was considered David Petraeus's buddy and very reliable. So, you know, I, it's very easy to give you a quick, gimmicky answer to your question, but it wouldn't do it justice, because yesterday's friends can be tom- tomorrow's enemy. But the one thing that stays constant is that there's not a whole lot of consistent strategy in our approach to the Middle East. And I'm not trying to just beat up on the US government or this administration or the other one. It's just if you take a step back and you look at the region and say, wow, you know, first Gulf War 1990, 91, uh, look at the last Gulf War, look at Saddam Fall, and look at Syria, 10 years of utter destruction of that country wouldn't have made sense to take out the regime at some point. In 2011, Bashar al-Assad says to his people, hey, You either get me or I burn down the damn place. In the end, they got both. He stayed in power and he burned down the damn place. So take it all into account, look at it all and say, wow, maybe we could have done a little bit more. Or we say, let's get out of the Middle East entirely because it's entirely hopeless. There's nothing to contribute. But what we're doing is something in between. And I don't believe it's particularly useful. I think that the attacks that you just referred to uh, in southern Iraq had more to do with the Biden administration wanting to prove to its allies, including Israel, that it can be tough on Iran, on Iran and Iranian type militias. I think yep. it has a lot more to do with kind of a pissing contest than with any particular political or military strategy.
3: So do you believe the story coming out of the Middle East that the Taliban has already taken over half of Afghanistan?
2: Yeah, I think that, I mean, uh, take again a step back, okay? We go to Afghanistan. Uh, this is the, the story of the Middle East and Mediterranean countries altogether. Uh, the natural way that societies live together is not through states with centralized government. The natural way that societies live together is in families and tribes. And a lot of these countries still are extremely tribal. You look at Yemen, where I'm very active, Libya, where I'm active. You look at Afghanistan, which is very much a tribal society. So what we did in that war and in our in our negotiations with the government in Kabul and then in the negotiations with the Taliban is try to replace that tribal society with a centralized government. Now we're moving out of there, so all the forces that created that tribal structure and where the Taliban has by far the most power is going back into that vacuum and taking over. So, yeah, I do believe that the Taliban is going to be back in charge, mainly because we were trying to change something that isn't really changeable in the way we're intending to do it.
4: IQ. Yeah, IQ
1: hours only. He
4: said it's correct. The only problem, Mr. Levin and the Americans and the Europeans have not come to the simple conclusion. The Shia militias and the ISIS are controlled by Turkey and Iran. And Turkey and Iran, whenever it suits them, they support each other. This is a fact that's happening in all over the Middle East. But the most important thing that the Europeans and the Americans have missed for 70 years, you are dealing with Islam. Simple, not complicated. See, Islam follows Sharia. You can never, ever have a democracy under Islam. That is through your head. But you you don't seem to understand that. You are failing, you, Europeans and Americans are failing again and again and again, because with all your intellect, with all the trillions of dollars in intelligence, you did not come to the simplest of conclusions. Islam is militant, Devastating, hate-mongering, war This is not a generalization. I said it many times on your program, James. You read only eight out of 114 chapters in the Quran. Chapter two to chapter nine, inclusive. And if you come to a conclusion opposite to mine, please, let's have a debate. What do you think, Mr. Levin? I, I don't disagree
2: with you as a general statement. I I, uh, I would like to add a few points, and and I'm sure you you know you have far deeper knowledge on this than I do. So it's just a commentary from a layperson. So indulge me for a moment. I do believe that uh, if we're looking at the region today, it's a very different region from Saladin. Uh, we're looking at a very different time from the fight against the Crusaders, and we're looking at Islam. Islam in Baghdad in the Middle Ages was the height of intellect, architecture, philosophy, and science that before it was was destroyed by the Mongols and Genghis Khan. Uh, And if we're looking at the Islamic world, so I'm going beyond the Arab world, the Islamic world that will include Pakistan and other countries, uh, I think that we have to make a distinction between pre-1979 and Uh, post-1979. uh, two major things happened. One, we had the Islamic revolution in Iran with Khomeini coming back and replacing a secular government. The reasons for that are well known. We don't need to get back into it, including the role of the CIA and the MI5 and, the, and MI6 in that, uh, and, uh, and the, the nationalization of the oil industry that led to our support for for opposition. But, but basically, you had a complete change of Iranian society in 1979. And the other thing that happened in 1979 is that you had the attack on the Grand Mosque in Mecca, uh, which led to an unbelievable radicalization uh, of, this, of this convergence between the House of Saud and Wahhabi clerics in Saudi Arabia. I think these two events together were unbelievably toxic for the Islamic world. I'm not going to debate this shura or another shura in the Quran, but for every shura that talks about violence and war, you can find a shura that also talks about peace and reconciliation. So, uh, and the same is true for the Old Testament or the New Testament. I tend not to avoid religious debates based on religious sources, which may or may not be God-given. This is beyond my pay grade. What I will say is the Islamic world, uh, in At large, pre-1979 was a very different one. Pakistan was a very different society. Iran, obviously, was a very different society. And so I think we have to be a little bit cautious in painting it with a very broad brush. I do agree with you also that, that generally the Arab and the Islamic world are fundamentally misunderstood in the US and in Europe. Fundamentally misunderstood uh, for a number of reasons. In the European case, probably colonial hubris. Uh, I mean, the first thing that the French general did in 1920, uh, when he was renegotiating the position in Syria, is go to the tomb of Salah ad uh, who famously fought the Crusaders and repelled the Crusaders a thousand years earlier, and kicked his tomb and said, well, Salah or oh, he called him Saladin, we're back now, as you can see, we're totally disrespectfully. Uh, I think that the, the French and the British had shown some colonial hubris and still do that today, whereas the U.S. probably never quite understood the Middle East. Kissinger and all the others notwithstanding. Uh, but, but please, you know, feel free to correct me. I'm sure your knowledge and all that is goes far deeper than mine.
4: Look, Mr. Levin, I'm not trying to correct you, but believe me, the fundamental and common denominator in all what you just said is Islam. You said there are verses conciliatory and verses militant. You're right. Because uh, Muhammad went into two periods. It's called the Mecca period and the Medina period. In the Mecca period, he was singular. He did not have an army. And that was for the first 10 years of his life. In fact, 13 years. But when he moved from Mecca to Medina and became the leader of the first organized crime syndicate in human history, all the verses of the Quran became militant, militaristic. By the way, nobody revealed anything to Muhammad. Every single letter, verse and chapter in the Quran were created by Muhammad himself, okay? All you need to do is read it, but nobody seems to be reading the Qur'an. Nobody seems to be investigating the Qur'an. Nobody in... you, You have Ilhan Omar in America. You have Rashida Tlaib. They swore allegiance to the American Constitution on the Qur'an, the nemesis of the American Constitution. I'm not generalizing. I'm extremely accurate in my point of view. The common denominator is Sharia. Whether you are Sunni or you are Khomeini, Shia, it makes absolutely no difference. Their hatred of non-Muslims is complete. And I'm talking their hatred of 80% of humanity today, Christians, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Pagans, everybody else is not a Muslim. I'm sorry I give you this negative point of view, but I promise you, if you can find somebody to correct me, I would love to debate them. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So, Daniel, this this book that you have here, uh, w- what's been the feedback you've gotten on the book so far?
2: Uh, look, the feedback generally from readers has been good. I've gotten uh, some negative feedback from uh, one category of people in particular, which is the foreign policy kind of think tank circuit, mainly in Washington, D.C. I think there is a... There's a sense that the things I experienced in the region through the work of our foundation on the ground in Syria and other countries can't possibly surpass their, uh, you know, exalted status as the keepers of of academic intelligence. And so there, there's obviously always going to step on some toes. My book is, a, is a nonfiction, and I don't really try to get into big policy debates in my book. Uh, um, what I'm doing is really reporting the way the people are describing that war, the people who are making money on that war, the drug trade in the war, but you always have people in the, you know, the sort of Council of Foreign Relations, the the very, the Brookings Heritage, all the various think tanks who believe that they are holding the core expertise when it comes to the Middle East and other regions, uh, and that uh, you need to you need to bow to that. So there's a lot of, there's some hostility that goes to that, and I'm in some, some panels and debates with that, that just comes with the territory.
1: We've got a great guest with us today. He joins us live here in a broadcast. You can get more information, Daniel Levin Author dot com. So I go back to Dan. Dan uh, sitting yes, here sir. listening to uh, to Daniel. I'm sure you've got some more questions for him.
3: Yeah, I, I'm. I've been investing money professionally for over 50 years, and energy has been a core structure for me, is for my clients in, in many different ways. And I look at what's happened to the oil market since um, Biden became president and stopped the Keystone Pipeline and and other drilling situations. Uh, The the price of crude oil has moved about 50%, um, which would mean that the treasuries of these Middle East countries that were oil exporters has probably started to refill. Now, they... They, they spent a lot of their treasury in order to try and keep their people alive during the pandemic. But now that oil prices are starting to come back and some are predicting $100 a barrel by the end of the summer, what are they going to be doing with their cash?
2: Oh, boy, that's what talk about a great question. I think that... Uh... Most of the countries in the Gulf, let's just focus on the Gulf uh, oil oil uh, exporting countries. I think it's really different in Africa. I think it's different with countries with really heavy crude like Angola and in the Gulf of Guinea. But I'm talking now, if you're talking Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, I mean, the United Arab Emirates is Abu Dhabi that sits as a city on 12 or 13% of the worldwide oil production. It's unbelievable wealth. Uh, I think that they're still working on the assumption that... Within the next two generations, and you count a generation as 14 years, so within the next uh, 28 years, uh, their leverage in the oil markets will fade. That there will ultimately different solutions for a number of reasons, not just because there will be uh, re- replacements for fossil fuels in, in most industries, but also because they believe that the U.S. has the ability to to uh, to produce enough oil to be self-sufficient. So this old pact that existed with the Gulf monarchies for the last hundred years, especially with Saudi Arabia, but then also with the others, where the U.S. provides the security in the region, uh, and in return, uh, the, the monarchies export crude to the U.S. and agree to price crude in U.S. dollars and thereby assure that the U.S. has maintained its status as a global reserve currency. They, they believe that pact is going to change. They're working on that assumption, whether oil is at 100 bucks a barrel or whether it's at 15 bucks a barrel. Saudi Arabia produces it at $5 a barrel. So even at really low, low prices, uh, they can sit this out. They can handle this. The problem that they have is that the oil stability funds that they created, meaning excess cash that goes into a national stability fund, was priced really high. So to give you an example. In the early 2000s, I was involved in Russia and helping create an oil stability fund. And what they did is they they were smart enough, this is Putin's first term, so uh, a very different kind of President Putin. He was smart enough to say that every dollar above 50 per barrel will go into a stability fund. He actually lowered that number, then it it was raised a little bit later. At some point, it ended up at 70. But when oil prices were very high, it was a lot of money going into the national stability fund, which which sustained that government. The Saudis never did that. And now they were so addicted to high oil prices that they refused to create that stability fund. And when they did create it, it was benchmarked so high that there was very little money flowing into it. So actually, despite high prices and very uh, and very low production costs, there's very little that they've maintained in these in these stability funds. Abu Dhabi did it a little bit smarter. Uh, and their sovereign wealth funds are pretty well financed, so they can sit this out and invest. And the Qataris, of course, which is really more in the LNG, in the liquefied gas area, have are sitting very pretty as a as a, a resource for the future. But I think that all those countries are starting to realize that geopolitically this has shifted, which is also part of the reason for their new uh, ac- love affair with Israel and the Abraham Accords that they... That they uh, that they signed, meaning mainly of course Bahrain, the UAE and Saudi Arabia down the road. Uh, They want to make sure that there's another reason to maintain a friendly relationship with the US beyond just the oil industry.
3: Uh, Now you were talking about just just a moment ago, you talked about the the Abraham Accords with with Israel. Um, I've been reading about those accords and what the implications have been, for example, for tourism of Jews going into those Abraham countries and how the countries are adapting to the needs, wants and desires of the Jewish traveler. But um, I wonder if if we change administrations again in the United States um, in 2022 or 2024 to a more conservative situation, uh, we may see a real push again for energy independence in the United States which would put some real pressure on the on the Middle Eastern oil producers.
2: It will, but I think that the uh, the Abraham Accords are here to stay. Uh, I can tell you, I've been I've been in the UAE for the last twenty years. I know that you know I've spent so much time in the Gulf, and for most of those twenty years, Israeli security companies, experts, former Secret Service guys, special special forces graduates have been very active advising the rulers throughout the Gulf. And they have been active, companies such as NSO, which does this uh, Pegasus software that you can penetrate any any smartphone throughout it that has been used, for example, to track down Khashoggi, the, the Saudi dissident who was killed in Istanbul, uh, that's sold by the Israelis and it has been sold into the Gulf for a long time. So. I think that the Abram Accords and the relationships with Israel are here to stay. They they survived the recent flare-up between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. I don't believe that's gonna change. Whether uh, you have a new administration that's gonna push for increased production and energy efficiency or not, I don't believe I think that the fundamental shift in the way these Gulf monarchies look at the US has set in. By the way, the same is true for the Iranians. I, I'm dealing with a lot of Iranians right now. And the one thing they say is they finally internalized the fact that governments in the U.S. can change every few years. And so they just saw it with a nuclear agreement where uh, it was signed under the Obama administration. Trump tore it up. It, now Biden may re-enter it again, and then the next administration could tear it up again. So they're starting to look for different levels of reliable relationships with the U.S. And there are a number of ways to do that, but one of the easiest ways for them to do it is to do it via Israel. So that's a big part. It's, in fact, what you just asked, Dan, is that that unreliability of changing administrations in the U.S. is very much behind the Gulf monarchy's decision to establish friendly relationships, officially establish friendly relationships with Israel.
3: So do you... do we have time, Jim? Uh
1: well we're we're gonna have to wrap things up here with with, okay. with Daniel to get to our next guest. Uh Daniel, before okay. we let you go, how do we find you online, social media, get the book, everything?
2: So books, you can get anywhere you get books from your indie bookstore to the to the online retailers. That's not an issue. I don't do social media. Your indie bookstore to the to the online retailers. That's not an issue. I don't do social media. The website that you mentioned before, DanielLevinAuthor.com, is the best way to find me. There's information on me and and links to to uh, events and so on. That's the best way to do it. I'd, beyond that, I unfortunately I. I've managed to stay out of social media so far in my life. Good for you.
1: <laughs> yes, very, very good for you, sir. <laughs> that is that is tremendous because that uh, there there are a lot of folks that uh, they get stuck on social media. So uh, yeah, I
2: have enough hate in my life. I don't need to invite more for yeah. that. <laughs>
1: Well, you have been uh, tremendous, my friend. Thanks for doing this, and uh, I, I, I look forward to uh, chatting with you more down the line. Thank you,
2: sir. Thanks a lot, and thanks to Dan and IQ for your questions, and for, very I appreciate much, Thank it. You. Thank you very much.
1: Definitely. Well, have, have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you, Daniel.
2: And you too. Thanks a lot.
1: There Bye-bye. he goes, Daniel Levin. So, um, Dan, IQ, while we get our next guest on, What, what, what? give me kind of a wrap-up here of uh, –
4: of what you thought of it's very fascinating guy very i mean that he survived going into the middle east and come out alive knowing the, the other side knowing he's a jew this was remarkable he was very lucky
3: yes very lucky i would agree I, w- I would agree um sounds like uh at least so far uh i looked at the reviews but it sounds like a, a book worth reading over the summer
1: yes yes it is uh and and iq you're 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 right that was just uh, that that, that's amazing and he was able to he was able to get in and get out of there uh, alive because he (laughs) went to
4: really the most dangerous places to go into lebanon and come out alive is uh, remarkable absolutely remarkable just amazing well we are going to go to our next
1: guest uh here in just a few moments true allen is going to join us here on our big program and uh He, of course, is a Texas-bred, California-based conservative author and speaker. He writes a weekly blog promoting conservative ideals at DrewThomasAllen.com. And he's with us today talking about all sorts of different things. But I want to start with this uh, National Park Service is trying to link an American battlefield site to LGBTQ history. What in the world is going on here, Drew? Well, uh, it's
0: unbelievable to me how the left continues to break through the uh, glass ceiling of insanity they continue to set for themselves. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, But, you know, this national park stuff, it's another attempt to rewrite history and divide Americans. Uh, You know, flying the pride flag, for example, above our national parks. Absolutely insane. You know, the only the only flag that should be flying in a national capacity period is the American flag. And that's what we need is unity. And so now we've got, you know, they're going back and they're suggesting, for example, in a civil war battle, there was a, uh, a female who wanted to fight in the civil war for her cause. All right. So she, you know, gave herself a male name and dressed up as a man. And so that's some, somehow the, the predecessor of, I guess, choosing your own pronoun and, uh, you know, transitioning early on. And then they go to the, the you know, this uh, the battle with, um, of course, Custer and the Indians there, Custer's last stand. And they say that, oh, they've gone back in history and they found one of the Indians who was fighting in that battle was known to have dressed like a woman. So that's uh, the first, you know, entry of LGBTQRSAZ, a Z whatever, right? You know, it's, it's just it's literally ludicrous. It's insane. And um, it's just, you know, they won't give it up because they've got to divide America. If we actually were patriotic Americans who actually felt a kinship to one another. uh
1: well, we would blow off the Democrat party and they'd cease to exist. So Dan Perkins, uh, (laughs) you, 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 you look locked and loaded, my friend.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. Always fun. I want to, I want to take what you were asking and, and ask a question if I might. Um, we now know that apple pie is racist. Um, and yes, as a student of history, in fact, just re- recently finished a four and a half year effort into creating a novel on the American Civil War, I knew I do know that there are women who dressed up as men and got in and fought in various battles. Um, but what, what I'm trying to figure out is, uh, and I, I, am, I may have a wrong number and you can certainly help me, the last number I heard of the LBTQ Whatever was aggressively about three percent of the population in the United States, yeah. I think that's about as high as it gets. Okay, that's that's the high side. Um, the low side is really even much dramatically lower. I mean, dramatically lower in the 150,000, but. If if, if, three, if you take 3% of 330 million people, you've got a number of 10 million. I don't believe they're anywhere near 10 million. But the point of my question is, if it's 5 million out of 330 million, they have control of the country. What happened?
0: Well, they've done this time and time again. They do it all the time. And, you know, I would just add this, you know, the the modern invention of social media has made it easier to make themselves appear to be greater in numbers than they actually are. And this goes along with legislation they propose time and time again, which does not have a majority of American approval. Uh, But, you know, what they do is uh, they've got to make They've got to create these issues, right, about an oppressed people victim. So they're always looking to create a new victim class. I mean, the LGBTQ community uh, doesn't have any fewer rights than any other American. You cannot discriminate in a workplace against these individuals. And so that on its face is a lie. But they've got to act as if, of course, Republicans are against these people somehow, etc., so they then, of course, can... Do the, the, you know, the the tried and true tactic that the left always does, which is to then present themselves as the savior of this invented problem in America. But you're right. You know, it's absolutely absurd that, you know, we we have to rip apart society um, to to, you know, go along with the whims of people who are at most like three percent of the population.
3: So let's let's take it one step further. I've asked this question a lot in the last year if if we're right that the, that the population is somewhere, something less than 5 million people, and we have this situation where they seem to be very loud and outspoken, um, what happened to the women's movement when it came to this movement, when men who were physically developed as men who have decided that they wanna become women who are effectively competing against true females in athletic competition that are taking away the opportunities for females to gain scholarships and grants for education to improve themselves. What happened to the women in the LBTQ environment and, and the minorities who are m- most adversely affected?
0: Yeah, well, let's hope they wake up and understand that the Democrat Party is not for them. I mean, this is moral relativism, of course. You know, the thing about America that's so wonderful is, look, society changes over time. Um, you know, for example, with gay marriage, you know, for all of history, that was just something that was uh, accepted as a matter of society. Uh, that wasn't something that that was embraced. And then as society changes and opens up, that becomes a new avenue. But, you know, America um, overwhelmingly... Doesn't have an issue with inequality towards women anymore. Okay, so that's a that's that's a mute subject. So now here we come with a moral relativism, and now they've got to have another issue, and so now it's the LGBT community, the transgender community, which of course, to your point, that that is act- actually an assault on women's rights, that is an attack on women and right. their ability to perform and compete. Um, and to you and I, as we sit here, I mean it's absolutely insane. But the Democrat Party continues to push this narrative, and you know we've we've been over this again too. And and you know they they own the 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 mainstream media, and that is a very very powerful voice. Although if you look at Brian Stelter and um, Jake Tapper and some of these other people, their ratings are about zero. I think they have uh, only their parents watch their show still.
3: I can tell you, thank you for mentioning that because I can tell you my new radio show has more listeners than CNN has viewers.
0: <laughs> well, that's also a testament uh, to your success, not just the fact that they're so useless, but that's amazing.
3: Yeah, it, it's. Uh, but I, I look at it, and, and I, I get a sense for the first time in many, many years that the, the pendulum which swung to the left hard that created all these crazy issues, that America is finding its voice against many of these issues. And the fact that the that the, the Democrats who have been the controllers of Congress forever, even if they were in the minority, uh, don't know what to do, for example, about the Senate, because all these things that they thought they were gonna be able to pass because they had Kamala Harris as the Vice President of the tiebreaker. They made an assumption that all the Democrats would vote in one step, and they haven't. And so the the Biden agenda, which is being driven by the left, a minority, is under attack by the right majority in the country, and uh, is is not going anywhere.
0: That's uh, that's exactly right. There is a message of hope in that. Uh, I think. Absolutely, this country is not a majority leftist Marxist. And look, the Democrat Party, I say, is naked and afraid right now. Okay, Uh, if we go back in a time capsule, for example, to November 6th of 2020, there was an article published in which audio had been acquired of Nancy Pelosi and a caucus in the House who were discussing Democrats who were, you know, shooting themselves in the foot by talking openly about socialism And particularly about the issue of defund the police, because that was a metaphorical noose around their political necks, and they knew it back then, and they knew that they were going to lose seats because of it. And now you see them naked, and they're desperate, and now you see them literally making up a lie— that the Republican Party is responsible for the defund the police movement. You know, they're trying to put a a fig over their private parts and rewrite history before our very eyes. And so this is good news because they, if 2022 elections were held tomorrow, they would absolutely get destroyed. But you're right. They thought they were gonna pass through all this radical leftist agenda, including that hr1 s1 now called bill you know the for the people act which would basically be against the american people and for the democrat party to federalize elections and that hasn't happened and if they can't get those things pushed through they know they're in trouble for 2022 and then beyond if the republicans actually do their jobs so
3: okay i i think that i i was i i, I do a lot of uh, as jim knows i do a lot of radio and television and this morning I was on a, on several different radio and television shows. And I said, there are going to be two issues that are going to plague the Democrats during the summer. The first, which is the most vocal is critical race theory. And number two is defunding the police. There's, there's, there's no way to get out of those for the Democrats. And, and with, you want to change hearts be Republicans, but. When you've got the the level of crime that's taking place in the blue cities, and you've got now blue cities talking about refunding the police, the problem that they they're not think they're thinking, in my opinion, is that they're saying, oh well we'll just hire them back, they ain't coming back. There was a a, a thing on last night that showed that the city of New York has lost. 5300 policemen since this problem started and they're not coming back they're not coming back and chicago is like 2300 i mean it's the number of police that are leaving the policing jobs and are leaving these cities more and more exposed there don't the, the money isn't going to be sufficient to get policemen to join unless the standards are dramatically lowered just to get bodies in place. Then you have a problem of the police potentially being more aggressive and more dangerous uh, in in confrontations.
0: That's exactly right. It's like what we've seen happening with the uh, woke hiring of individuals to fill the FBI and other bureaucracies throughout the country, with Tucker Carlson now um, saying that he believes and has proof that um, – you know he's been spied upon his communications by the um, uh, the NSA. So uh, you know this is very dangerous. Actually, you know what? What I want most Americans to understand. There was a great story in the New York Post that came out, I believe, last week about this gentleman named Joseph Bolanos. He lives on the Upper West Side in New York City. Uh, he basically is like a citizen of the year. He's 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 um, volunteered for the Red Cross after 9/11. Throughout the pandemic, he gave out free mass and 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 space heaters to his neighbors. But Joseph Bolanos went to um, the rally in Washington D.C. about on on January 6th. Now he said he left that rally before the quote unquote insurrection even took place. He said it was getting boring, so he was 30 minutes away in his hotel room when it took took place. But he came home. And uh, he boasted that he had been at that that rally, and a neighbor reported him to the FBI. He got a phone call from the FBI. He called them back. They didn't respond. They showed up at his door. They interrogated him and asked him if he belonged to BLM, Antifa, or the Proud Boys. He gave them all sorts of information. He gave them video of what he had videotaped while he was there. And then they showed up in the middle of the night, and he lived with his 93-year-old mother, And they came into his house, pointing a gun at his head, and they arrested him and marched him into the streets. And NBC happened to be there to video this, of course. And he had a stroke on the way. He was taken to the hospital. And he still has, of course, there's been no uh, charges brought against him because he's done nothing wrong. But the point is, this is how dangerous the Democrat Party is right now. And their desperation is going to hurt innocent Americans. And now you have, it doesn't matter if you're Tucker Carlson or if you're Joseph Bolanos, who's just... Average Joe living in the Upper West Side, you know, they're making it easier and they're promoting this type of behavior in which you're going to be at Thanksgiving, Daniel, with your, uh, with your niece or something. And if she's a Marxist and you talk about, you know, your support of conservatism, you know, all, it, all it's going to take is a, a call to the FBI. And the next thing you know, uh, you're being um, whisked away in a, in a vehicle to be interrogated. That's where this is headed. It's, very, it's that dangerous.
3: I agree. I agree. How about IQ, Jim?
1: Yeah, IQ. Do you have
3: anything for Drew while we
4: got him here? Yes, it's depressing. (laughs) (laughs) It's depressing. What he is saying, I've been saying it, Drew, I've been saying this for years with James. I said, America, with all the brouhaha, you have no justice. You really have no justice. Because not a single person from the Obama regime with all the egregious things that they have done not one of them went to prison not one for hillary clinton to destroy 30,000 emails destroy literally physically the mobiles and everything as evidence and not get into prison or not even convicted of anything you have no you have no justice you're absolutely right it's frightening but it started all with political correctness. It all started under Obama. Believe me, I repeatedly said it on James and other talk shows, Obama did more damage in eight years to United States of America than 70 years of the Soviet Union. And uh, these are the results now.
0: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, IQ, absolutely dead on. And to your point, though, you know, this has to stop because uh, you're right. We do have basically a two-tier justice system, right? You know, if you're a Democrat, there's never any consequences, repercussions. If you're on our side, you're targeted for nothing. And, uh, you know, 1993 is when Travelgate happened, in which Hillary Clinton conspired to fire all the people that belonged to the travel office there. uh, So that she she could outsource that work to her buddies in Little Rock, Arkansas. And, um, you know, she escaped any blame there as well. And, in fact, Vince Foster, who was the the counsel there, he was the first one to commit suicide around the Clintons. And, of course, that kind of thing has uh, happened to the Clintons throughout their their lives. It's a shocking number of people who die suddenly uh, around the Clintons when they cross them.
4: There was no suicide. That was murder.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, they say it's suicide IQ. Yeah, but I'm not interested in what they say.
4: (laughs) They can say whatever they want. But it's a fact. When these people are dying in... Dozens, and not one, two, three, and very suspicious circumstances. Yes, it's murder, but doesn't matter. How we split it, it doesn't matter. The problem is now, God forbid, if there is any war, and I'm talking about serious thing, you will have nobody to volunteer in America. Except for the standing army, you will not have a single American volunteering. Correct me if I'm wrong.
0: Uh, No, you're not. You're not wrong. But I would say it's uh, what's scary to me is I would submit that we're in a cold civil war right now. And that's to say it's not violent right now. But the uh, line couldn't be drawn clear in the sand, just as it was prior to our previous civil war that we fought. Uh, There can be no compromise right now between Republicans and Democrats. I mean, the Democrats are all in for totalitarianism and their success is our demise. And just like Lincoln said back then, it's going to become all one thing or another. You know, it can't be split. And that's how serious it is today. And uh, it's frightening to me. Um, You know, and and let's hope we can right this ship and and basically defeat the Democrat Party here uh, sooner rather than later, because uh, if they aren't dealt with, uh, unfortunately, the, the realist in me, the historian in me, would say that history tells us what awaits.
4: You're absolutely right. If you don't defeat them in 2022... And Medicaid is finished.
0: But yeah. we did have all the good news, IQ. You know, we do <laughs> We do have evidence that they're spiraling out of control, and we just need to keep feeding them the rope. You know, that's what I keep saying. Feed them the rope. Maybe we'll cut them down when they're done, but, you know, we got to feed them the rope. And, and the Republicans just have to understand it. that they can't be afraid of the media and what the media is saying about them. But, you know, they need to understand how grave this is. And unfortunately, you have people like Mitt Romney who are saying, I trust Joe Biden. I mean, that guy, I don't know why he doesn't just say he's a Democrat.
4: Well, he's as demented as as Joe Biden I mean, one is a Republican And the other one is a Democrat But they're both dependent, there's no question Mentally, there is nothing in their brain I swear to you And I'm the outsider looking in I live in Europe I come from Iraq My background is completely different from yours But I love the United States of America I love the American Constitution And I learn more about the Constitution from Dan than all the news media in America. <laughs> you know what the reality
0: is, though? Uh, you are more red blooded and patriotic of an American than anybody on the left. And that's <laughs> the truth. Because America yes. is about an idea. And you've got it, and they don't. So they're disqualified. And, uh, you know, I got your back, friend.
4: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but you're right. I'm definitely more American than Americans.
3: <laughs> yeah. Hey, Jim. Yes, yes. Go ahead, Dan. So I, I, w- I want you to take a, just take a moment. This is a little fun we're going to have here. Take a moment and look at our guests straight on. Okay. Now I'm going to mention a name. Okay. Okay? See if you agree with me. I'm talking about look and voice. Tom Cruise. <laughs> A Young Tom yes. Cruise, yes, it's
4: possible. Yes, I agree. <laughs> uh, yeah, hey, you're in you're the last dead dead ringer film part. I saw him when he had a beard. He looks yeah. like you, Dead Ringer. Dead are are ringer. you
0: looking at a picture of uh, Dan Perkins when he was young, or what are <laughs> staring at? <laughs> I'm, you. I'm looking at
4: you, I'm looking at you, you're, you're <laughs> anyway. It's a compliment for God's
0: sake.
1: No, it's no, 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 a compliment for God's <laughs> sake. <laughs>
0: when I was in an all male prep school in <laughs> Dallas, Texas, uh, going to high school. You know, I, I had to wear a suit every day. So I'd go to, uh, you know, the tailor to get my pants fixed or whatever else. And there was an immigrant from Asia in there. I think she was from Vietnam. And she used to say every time I went in there, she'd call me, call me Tom Cruise. But I would like, in defense of myself, in defense of myself I never uh, berate and yell at anybody like Tom Cruise does. I'm not a Scientologist. And I'm taller than five foot four.
3: Okay. That's great. Uh, you know, I, I, I just thought, I thought it was amazing. Uh, you're a hell of a lot more articulate, too. Uh, well, that, too. No question. <laughs> that, too. So um, do you, what do you think is going to happen to Mr. Trump? Is he going to run again or is he going to stay on the sidelines? What's he going to do? Is he going to be shoot for uh, Speaker of the House? What's he going to do?
0: There's no way he'll, he'll um, demote himself to go for Speaker of the House. Yes.
3: <laughs> um, yeah.
0: You know, look, look. For all the things we can say about Donald Trump, you know, I've seen a lot of people on our side, people who are in the same business that I'm in here, that are even close to my age, that are pundits out there that have bigger voices than I do and bigger platforms. And uh, there's kind of a popular movement right now within the Republican Party to kind of um, pile on Trump right now Um, uh, to suggest, for example, that because these three Supreme Court justices, you know, that he put on on the Supreme Court aren't quite living up to their expectations, that that's his fault. And um, look, I understand that that Donald Trump is not the most articulate speaker in the world, but I'm not going to turn my back on him because he was a heck of a fighter for the American people. And, you know, to to buy into this idea that Donald Trump is somehow detrimental to the Republican Party right now, I I just won't go there because that's assuming that what the left puts forward is Jesus Christ. And uh, what they put forward in terms of Joe Biden and everyone else on their side make— effectively, Donald Trump looked like Jesus Christ, okay? And so I think that he is planning right now to run in 2024. I think he's feeling it out and seeing where things go. But, you know, DeSantis is obviously a leading contender uh, if Trump is not the one to vie for it. But I always tell people this. Look, a lot of people are lying to themselves because they think that Donald Trump's too damaged and this and that, okay? But you've got Ronnie now who's being hit by The Washington Post about his response to, of course, the Surfside building collapse. All right. The mayor there came out in defense of him and said, no, no, FEMA got us the money right away. He signed the order. Everything's good. But my point is, it doesn't matter who runs for president. That individual is going to be smeared and destroyed by the left and the propagandist media. And so I'm still supportive of Donald Trump. I think he'll make the right decision for the country. Um, But I think he's feeling it out. You know he's starting to come back out, and we need a well, look. We need a unifying voice right now. We really do. And if it's Trump and he can do that and find a way that's effective and useful to us, we'll see. But I'm not ready right now to join the chorus that is saying, "Get out of the way, get in the wings, let somebody else come out." I'm just not going to do it.
3: Oh, I, I agree with you. I think that there's there's a couple of quick issues because we're all out of time here. Um, I find, as somebody who's been in the news media for a long time, uh, I find it amazing that it were now almost nine months into the new presidency and the media cannot let go of Donald Trump. They can't let go of him. And if they didn't, if they didn't have this level of, 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 of going after him, their ratings would be zero. I mean, they would have because they, they can't talk about Joe. The other thing yes. is, the other thing is that. Uh, in his most recent appearance outside of Cleveland, I loved his opening statement. Do you miss me? Do you miss me? And then he talked about all these people who were after him and how their ratings have cratered. Because nobody's interested. As I said, I get more, I get more listeners than, than CNN. But, but it, it, it's, it seems to me that there's a, there are lots of cracks in the walls in the Democratic Party. And I don't think they can. I don't think they can plug them. I think they're gonna. They're gonna pay an incredibly.
0: De- Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps. You know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, low